Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. everyone. I'm so glad you could join us for this episode of Centering, where we talk all the things related to Asian American Christian life and to living out Asian American Christian faith. So this season is special to me. Uh, it's focused on the theme of biblical scholarship and the church, how biblical scholars are shaped by and do their work for the church. You might have wondered, why do we even need biblical experts? And how does their expertise reach us and impact our understanding of God and the interpretation of the Bible? I could think of no better person than to help us broach these questions than Dr. Jordan Ryan. Dr. Ryan is an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. And he was actually, he's from Canada. He was born and raised in the multicultural city of Canada, of Toronto. He grew up with parents who worked with the street population, the youth population in the inner city. And so he lived in community with some of the city's most marginalized people. And these experiences have contributed to Jordan's formation and continue to shape his thought and teaching and interest in Jesus's teachings on the kingdom of God and the gospels. So much of Jordan's research involves the study of early Judaism in the land of Israel-Palestine. He does work situating Jesus and the gospel narratives within the early Jewish context. And one way he does this is by digging. That is through the work of archaeology. And I'm going to ask you more about this in a little bit. Your first book, The Role of the Synagogue in the Aims of Jesus, studied and contextualized Jesus' activities in the synagogue, which is really interesting. And you have a more recent book from 2021 published by TNT Clark called From the Passion to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Memories of Jesus in Place, Pilgrimage, and Early Holy Sites over the First Three Centuries. Now that title, I, 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 that must have been hard to come by. And you offer in that book, a study of early church buildings, such as the ways in which traditions about Jesus were commemorated in architectural form. So Jordan has also a growing interest in his teaching and research in urban issues in the ancient world, as well as underrepresented voices in biblical scholarship. So Jordan, it's such an honor and it's wonderful to have you as a guest. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I actually listen to Centering. I love the podcast. So oh, yeah? very happy. Yeah, for sure. I've been listening for a while, actually. So I'm really happy to be here. here. This yeah. is the eighth season. So there's whole seven, seven yeah. seasons to delve into for those listening for the first time. So I just mentioned your uh, scholarship that involves a lot of archaeology. And I think that's really fascinating. And uh, you've been participating, you've told me, in excavations in Mandela in Israel for like an annual on an annual basis for like many years now is it like since 2012 or something like that yeah so i've been digging since 2012 there's a few years where i wasn't there like 2020 for example pretty oh, well, much no yes. one was there That's but true. yeah i mean i've it's been um I, don't, I can't remember exactly how many seasons now i started out at magdala which is right on the the shores of the sea of galilee and i now am also staff at a place called tel shimron so we're excavating right on the edge of galilee just at the north end of the Jezreel Valley. And I'm there like seven weeks every summer. Long time. You take students, undergrads. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this year, I think we had like 20 students or something like that. And boy, is it different teaching in the field than it is in the classroom. We're just constantly in close contact. Grad school prepared me for none of that. It's all, <laughs> yeah, for, for like just being in And the weather, the contact. heat. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's 
it is it is no joke anyone who tells you that galilee is a dry heat hasn't been to galilee it is so humid um but i kind of love it i don't know it's it's you it's must. a good time i mean you've yeah been absolutely. There many years and yeah. how do the students do these undergrads digging for the first time maybe in their life but digging something that they might not quite grasp the project at hand like is it life mind-blowing life-changing these archaeological excavations yeah it really seems to be i won't say that digging is for every single student that we brought but all of them i think come away changed one thing that i hear from students all the time is that they can't read the bible the same way after having visited um you know israel and palestine and especially after having like touched and actually excavated the world of the first century and understanding you know what it was like to be Jewish in Galilee firsthand from, you know, the artifacts and the traces that people leave behind in the past. So it's, it's a blast. It's fun to see like the little light go off, right. When they start learning about Jewish life. The other neat thing is, is that, you know, the new Testament, especially the gospels has a lot to say about people who are kind of on the margins of Jewish society. And one of the things that archeology span kind of lets us do is excavate and learn about the lives of people that texts don't talk a lot about. So the New Testament is is kind of like a little bit interesting in that it has a lot to say about people who are on the margins, especially people who come from the lower classes, economically speaking. And we get to actually see what their lives were like. Because this aspect of their material culture isn't necessarily preserved in a lot of writings, because that is often from the perspective of more elite, the elites in society. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, it's people, you have to be literate, you have to have some money to write texts. And so, like, people who are poor show up in texts sometimes, but it's usually from the perspective of somebody who isn't poor. And so we actually get to see what their lives were really like. Um, we under- get to understand their experiences. And so that's part of what I really like to do. Part of my work is doing that kind of a thing as we excavate in rural Galilee, basically nowheresville um, in, wow. yeah, in, in first century Galilee. So do you dig up things like receipts, bank statements, um, like cookie cookware? Yeah, I... I wish we we had more text. So far, we only have one inscription, and I won't say that much about it, but it is two letters and just says, fuh. It's, it's like, fi epsilon. <laughs> and that's all we've got, and it's on the bottom of somebody's drinking cup. So I'd like to know what that was about. But what we get is, yeah, so we get a lot of their cookware. And I mean, food is culture. I think of it this all the time, the way that, you know, in my house, we have a really good walk that was important for my wife and I. My wife is um, the Singaporean Canadian and I'm half Filipino and it's interesting, right? There's certain kinds of objects that you need to cook food in a certain way. And so, yeah, we see through their cookware, what people like to eat, what they could eat, what they could afford. The things that people own tell us a lot about who they are. Material culture is a way that we express ourselves through what we own, what we wear, um, what we choose to have says a lot about who we are. And we see that exactly with first century Galilee, just as we see it in our houses today. Yeah. And it's, you know, we we often talked about the context of of, of the biblical text and the context of the reader, but you're really fleshing out, digging out material aspects of the historical, social historical context of the New Testament. And I think that's really fascinating and really important, but often just kind of not part of the church dialogue of how archaeology might inform and illuminate the biblical text and the biblical world. 
So I'm really glad you're doing that work. And I think I'm assuming you're going to keep doing it. Oh yeah. I, I have a blast doing it. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work to be honest. Like it's, <laughs> I, yeah, I sometimes, sometimes when I'm in the middle of it, I kind of question like, is this really what I wanted to do with my life? Like, but the reality is, is that the knowledge is invaluable. And also there's kind of a recovery of a lost past there. And we get to recover history and not just the history of first century Judaism. You know, we're looking at everything from the Canaanites through mm-hmm. to, um, to the, early Islamic period. So we, we get to learn all sorts of new stuff about early Islam in the region. That's really interesting too, all the way into the early modern period and, you know, early state of Israel and stuff like that. And so it's, it's just a sort of fresh insight into the world, into history, but also into the biblical text. I, I think that archeologists have done a bad job and I, I'm including myself in this of showing people why it matters for understanding the world around us. I think we publish a lot of really specialized things. And I really think it's important for us to make that more accessible and to explain to people why this stuff matters. No, that really helps. And, you know, somebody's got to do the dirty work. Oh, yeah. Good, good fun, by the way. <laughs> Couldn't resist. So talking more about the new, the biblical text, what have you been reading lately that's been exciting you? Yeah, great. Yeah, great question. So Lately, I've been obsessed with Luke 14, Mm. Um, specifically the, so there's the passage about Jesus being invited to dinner and for lots of reasons, invitations to dinner kind of fascinate me, partly because like, you know, when you, when you get to be a certain age, that's, that's how most of your social interactions kind of play out is like around a dinner table. And also, you know, coming from a Filipino Canadian household, like, invitations to dinner were kind of like, that's our bread and butter. Um, Everything good happens around a table. And so I've been sort of obsessed with this passage, but also because of what Jesus actually says. So specifically, I really like the part of the passage. It's verses seven to 13. And so this is where he's talking about guests choosing the places of honor at the banquet that he's at. And he says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." So that is the passage that has just been on my mind lately. And a few reasons why one is that, so there's the dinner thing, which I already mentioned, but the thing that really, I think speaks to me, there's two things in particular. One is this whole idea in verse 11, he says, all who exalt themselves will be humble and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's this whole theme of the reversal of values, which speak theme in Luke, but also throughout the new Testament. And the reality is, is that it's, it's such a common theme throughout the New Testament that it almost binds it together. Mm-hmm. And 
for me, as, as someone who comes from the background of being Filipino American, I had a hard time seeing myself in the world just sort of represented out there. And so I always sort of felt like we were at the bottom of society. Hmm. And so passages like this have really spoken to me. So there's that. And the other thing about it is it's the fact that they're at the table to begin with. Hmm. Um, it's, it's taking up space at hmm. a table and Jesus actually gets to take up space at this kind of fancy banquet and then tells people, you know, to kind of do the wrong social thing, to do the opposite of what you're supposed to do. And then he has like the gumption to say to the host, like, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't just invite the wealthy people. Don't invite your friends or brothers. Instead, invite the poor and let them have a seat at the table. Let them take up space too. And so for that reason, this passage has been on my mind. I've been sharing it with like all my students. It's it's like all I've ever talked about in the last month. Gosh, you know, I, I'm, I think that what you're saying also reflects how when you read passages like in scripture, you don't always see yourself as a protagonist. Yeah. Like, so not necessarily, and this might very well, like you said, be having to do with yourself being a Filipino American as an Asian, as a Korean American, I too often don't, didn't read text and go, oh, that that's, that's me. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. And, and it's this whole idea again, it's like, it's also those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It's not just that the, like those who are humbled, you know, those who like, like the poor will be exalted, but it's also those who would exalt themselves are humbled. Right. And so there's this like reordering of com like complete reordering of societal values. You know, this context is a context where there's that whole idea of the Roman Ordo, where everyone has their place in society. You're not supposed to disrupt it. And this is like incredibly disruptive. It's, turning it completely upside down and on its head. It reminds me of that passage in Acts 2 where the early Christians get accused of turning the whole world upside down, or that's how they're referred to as the people who are turning the world upside down. They've come here too, right? And so I kind of just like this whole idea of the table as a place where that order gets disrupted and where it gets yes. disrupted, you know, in, in this passage with, with Jesus. So yeah, I, I love this passage. Yeah. It's a messy meal. What's going on here? Yeah. It would be really uh, disarming and disconcerting for depending on who you are. Um, yes, exactly. You're humble or um, exalted in coming into that meal. That's really great. Thanks, Jordan, for sharing that. You, you mentioned that you grew up in Toronto and your parents seem to be pretty heavily involved in ministry. When did you decide you wanted to become a biblical scholar? Yeah, boy, that, so this, this is a good question. And I, I've been thinking about this recently because other people have asked me this and so here's what I think the answer is, because it's hard for me to like put my finger on, but I remember something from when I was very young. So my father worked for this organization called Young Street Mission in downtown Toronto in the inner city. And he started out with this drop-in center for street youth. And what happened was, is basically just like, it wasn't specifically evangelistic. It was really more of a place for them to do things like um, receive healthcare, which is by the way, free in Canada, except you need to have a fixed address. And so if you don't have a fixed address, you can't get a health card. Mm -hmm. And so they're providing access to things like healthcare and services and, you know, food. And through that ministry, many of the street youth came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the love that they were shown. The problem was, is that then they would try to go to churches. And when they would try to go to churches, they basically would be told that this place wasn't for them mm -hmm. um, because of how they looked, because of how they dressed, because of how they smelled. 
And so they went back to my dad and asked him if he would found a church for them. Now, I, I hope I'm getting the story right, because this is, this is my dad's story. And this was like before I was born or around when I was born. And he ended up founding this church, which was for street youth. And he hadn't gone into it kind of planning to do that. So that was the church that is like that. I didn't entirely grow up there, but that was the church, like my first church. And I remember something very specific from that church. And it was that my uh, father kind of let the the street youth worship in the way that they wanted to. And so I remember like my dad was talking about, I think in the sermon, something about the kingdom of God. And I remember seeing there was this worship band kind of like you have in a lot of evangelical churches but it was, you know, the eighties and it was street youth. So it sounded more like the Ramones or the clash than like anything that we'd recognize as, you know, Christian contemporary. And at the same time, there were youth who were painting a mural that was kind of depicting scenes from their life and kind of scenes from the city. Mm -hmm. And like, even that young, I remember thinking like, oh, this is, this is the kingdom of God. Like, this is what my dad was talking about. And that memory has never left me. Um, and so, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I volunteered at the same organization and then I ended up working for them on a part-time basis for a while. And I started thinking about, you know, I, I just couldn't get the kingdom of God out of my head and I couldn't get these sort of teachings of Jesus like that one in Luke 14 out of my head. And so I went into university. I went to the University of Toronto with the idea that I wanted to study something about Christianity, but specifically I was really, really, really drawn to the figure of Jesus. And so I'm not sure that I can say that that was the moment, like when I was like five years old or six or whatever, when I saw that um, at my dad's church, that that's when I decided I was going to be a biblical scholar. But it was that event that definitely led me to think like, this is something that I just can't get out of my head because I'd seen it. And so I, I like I'd already gone into university thinking that I wanted to go into academics and I wanted to study Jesus. And so that's basically what I've been doing ever since. So when did you, okay. When so was it in at the university of Toronto? Were you t- taking courses that kind of made you go, Oh, well, and after this, I want to go to seminary. And then after that, I want to do a PhD or was it, it kind of later? Can you just kind of take that apart, parse that for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. So it was, yeah, I know it's hard to put my finger on. It was when I was in high school and when I was volunteering at the same organization that my father had worked at and where he'd founded that church that I was like, oh, I want to study Jesus. And so I, and I, when did, how did you realize how you could study Jesus? Oh, okay. Right? Like it's I, one thing to know you want to, it's another thing to know where to go, who to go to, where, where, where that action can take place. Yeah. So basically I realized I looked at the rankings of schools in Canada because that's what okay. you do when you're 16 years old and saw that the University of Toronto <laughs> was ranked the best. <laughs> and, you know, whether that's a good metric or not, who knows, but, you know, um, that's, that's what I did. And so I, I actually went into university thinking like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this degree and then I'm going to do an MA, then I'm going to do a PhD. So like before I'd even, I think being accepted to the University of Toronto, I was already thinking like, in New I'm going to. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was going to be New Testament or like, you know, something a little bit more philosophical, but Mm -hmm. it it was going to have something to do with Jesus. Okay. Um, You're on the Jesus track since you're a teen. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I, it's hard to put my finger on it any more closely than that, but yeah. Okay. And then did you, when did you come to the States for your studies? Did you at all? No. So all my degrees were done in Canada. I studied at the University of Toronto, then the Toronto School of Theology, which is that's sort of the consortium of divinity schools at Toronto. And then I did my PhD at McMaster University. So fully Canadian as far as my Wheaton was kind of your first foray into like the U.S. education. Yes. Yeah. I came to I moved to the United States in the Midwest to the Midwest in 2016 from Toronto, from Toronto. Yeah. City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to the Chicago suburbs to, and in, in the midst of like one of the most polarized election cycles yeah. in U.S. history, uh, totally full of just like culture clash and, and culture shock for me. And did you see, did you feel like a difference in terms of like the church life when you came to the, when you came to Wheaton, when you came to Illinois, uh, what were some, what was it, was it a kind of a culture shock for you? I mean, you referenced it, but like just in your own family life? Did you sense that difference? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, the, the culture shock was so like I had experienced some racism growing up, but what I wasn't prepared for was when I moved to the U S within like, I think the first month of me being in, in the States, I had my first, what I call what I've come to call like drive-by racism Mm-hmm. which is literally where, and this has happened to me a number of times where um, someone will drive by in, in a vehicle and they'll shout something racist at me going by. And my first experience of that was within like the first month or two of being in the U S mm-hmm. um, and of all things. And this is, this is where I knew, Oh, I'm in a different country was it wasn't anti-Asian racism. The thing they shouted at me was clearly they were, they were misracializing me as Latino mm-hmm. Um and that was the moment I knew, oh, I'm in another country. I can't remember if I'd started teaching it. We, I'd moved already to begin teaching. Um, and there was another thing that happened too, which was I was teaching my first day of class. And I, I taught two sections of New Testament, basically the New Testament intro course at Wheaton. And a thing happened at the end of the first class, which was, so I didn't tell any of the students what my ethnic background was. Mm. Um, I mentioned that I was from Canada because I had this accent and all that. And so that, you know, they're always interested in that. And it's fun to kind of like make fun of Canada um, <laughs> as a Canadian, right? And, you know, talk about milk and bags or whatever. And I did that. But then after class, a number of students came up to me and asked me what they did the whole, like, what are you? And I'm, I'm mixed, right? I'm half white Newfoundlander Canadian and half Filipino. And so that was, that's like not something you would do typically in Toronto. Like I'm pretty sure it's also rude in the States, but like as a student, I would never have done that to a professor. And I realized, oh, this is a different world. And then in the class, so I decided in the next class, because I had two sections, I would get in front of this and I just tell people, yeah, I'm half Filipino and I've just moved to the US. And what happened changed my life because what actually happened was after class, a student came up to me who I was pretty certain was Filipino as well. And he said words that I'll never forget. He said, I didn't realize that Filipinos could be professors here. And I said, 
do you mean at Wheaton? And because I thought I thought I kind of knew where that was going. Mm. And he said, no, in America. Mm. And that just completely changed my life. I knew, yeah, I'm I'm mm. in a different in a different country here. Not that Canada is like better. Um, but those things were just so at the surface of kind of my experience. And that's, you know, very much shaped who I am as a scholar since that day. Wow. And this is within the first two months of you entering. Yeah. This, oh, yeah. <laughs> the country. Oh. Uh, Jordan, I'm kind of soaking. I'm soaking this in. I'm thinking about like how you're, you're, you know, you're comparing or you're sharing about your coming to the States and the difference. One of the differences being it's, it's such a racialized place. Your yes. students cannot help but want to know where are you from? Where are you really from? What are you? What are you really? Exactly. Right? And that, that question just is pervading their thoughts as you're teaching and, 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 and how, and for another student that, that who you are, you naming that and their ability to identify with that. Um, it, it really reveals also this, like that, that class and race ethnicity intersection, you know, especially for, well, not especially, but Filipino Americans in their country has such a long history and such, such a actually large population numbers and yet so underrepresented um, not only in the academy, one could say, but also within church leadership, biblical scholarship. And so that question is really powerful and haunting. And it reveals a lot too. It presses on, on a lot of um, points. So could you say more about that? Or I mean, you, maybe you've already said your, what you wanted to say. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to speak to that more because it's, like I said, it was, this was kind of a formative thing for me. You know, since then, I've I I realized that I needed to understand what was going on, and I needed to understand myself. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I had a little bit of colonial mentality, as many of us do, mm-hmm. in that like I, you know, I didn't really know what to do with my mixed identity. I didn't know what to do with my Filipino background. And the thing is, is that I'd always sort of known that there was something about Filipinos and labor um, because. You know, I'd always seen people who were from the same ethnic background as me, whether they were mixed or not, they're full Filipino, who were working, you know, in in basically like manual labor and in service industry. And I'd always wondered, like, why that was Mm -hmm. um, and what the history was there. And every now and again, someone would say something to me about that, like how the U.S. was related to the Philippines, about like. Um, the Philippines being U.S. Commonwealth or former U.S. territory. But the thing is, is so like, I didn't know that history and I didn't know very well that, you know, the United States had invaded the Philippines in 1899 and that there was this massive war that involved, you know, that wasn't popular in the United States. And so there was a specific program to portray Filipinos specifically as an inferior people who needed to be civilized. And so I, I didn't know any of that. And so I, I started reading the history and all of a sudden my experiences started making sense. You know, growing up, I had never really seen myself reflected in anything. Mm. And this, this is kind of a sad story, but my sister and I were always looking for like representation and we can never really find it. And so um, I remember once my, one of my older cousins telling my sister and I that um, the singing voice of Jasmine in Aladdin, right? So, Yasalanga. Like, yeah, it's exactly. It was Yasalanga, and that she was Filipina. Yeah, and that was huge for us. 
the thing is, is this was before YouTube. And so you couldn't see her. We exactly. So we heard her and knew that the voice was a Filipino voice, but it wasn't until YouTube that like in the two thousands. So I grew up, you know, as a child in the nineties in the two thousands, I, on YouTube, I remember I searched for Leah Salonga on YouTube to see what she looked like. Cause we were way too young to see like Miss Saigon and stuff. In the yeah, yeah. And, and so, and then I saw this, this video of her singing, like, I think it was Via Della Rosa. And I remember it being this hugely impactful moment to finally see the face behind that voice. And like, that's kind of the level of invisibility that we have. And, and also that's combined with the fact that there's this phenomenon of Filipinos being exploited in the U.S. for labor, the phenomenon of overseas Filipino workers. And so our context is, I think, very different from a lot of other Asian American contexts because of that. Um, the invisibility, we all experience some invisibility for sure, but it's really acute with Filipino Americans. And when it comes to labor exploitation, I have always felt that we're racialized a little bit differently. Whereas I've never really been treated as a model minority. Instead, it really feels like we're treated as like a servant class or a racial underclass. So that's why in some of my academic work, I talk about Filipino Americans and an underclass myth rather than a model minority myth, because that really reflects my experience of sort of how we're treated, how my family's being treated in the past. And also that experience I had with, with that student and, you know, having to sit with the fact that um, as far as I know, I believe I'm the first Filipino um, faculty member at Wheaton College and having to sit with all these students who have never seen themselves represented and, and that sort of a thing. So that's, that's really been um, part, of, you know, part of how my context has, has just influenced the way my career is being shaped. Hey, I'm Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support Centering, please visit fuller.edu slash giveaac. Again, that link is filler.edu slash giveaac. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so important to emphasize that Asian America is not a monolith. Right. Even so. though there is there, there, there are some overlapping experiences, there are also various histories, right? And um, racialization, like experiences of inclusion and exclusion, um, they're diverse mm -hmm. and at, at some points overlapping. And so I think you're pointing out that importance. And also, I think in Asian American theology and biblical studies, East Asian Americans tend to be more represented in the guild and in churches, their voices than Southeast Asian, for example, South Asian American uh, voices. And so it's so helpful to think about and well, for you to nuance and to show your discovery into this um, was also very probably painful at times, I'm assuming. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I'll, I'll give you an example of, mm -hmm. of a story. Um, and so, okay, it's important to recognize, first of all, that in the U.S., Filipino, um, 
So Filipino Americans are the third largest Asian ethnic group in the U.S. Some sources say second. I think I think it is probably third. I think Indian Americans are now a bigger group. And we're also, I think, the most statistically Christian. We're about 89 to 90% identify as Christian. And despite that, there are very few biblical scholars of Filipino descent in the U.S. Um, and I've, I've tried to find others, and there are there's definitely less than five. I'll put it that way. And that means that the Bible's always being mediated to, to us by other people. Mm-hmm. And when this, this became really apparent to me, and also just sort of the need for, for something for our people became really apparent when I went to Oslo. So I got, in, I got invited to Oslo. Oslo, Norway? Yeah, in Norway, exactly. And I, I did this, I call it my Scandinavian lecture tour, which it, it wasn't really, but I, I did a couple of invited lectures. At, cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun at Lund in Sweden and then Oslo in Norway. And so to be clear, that was an awesome experience. And I'm really glad I got to do it. It was right before um, COVID. And I was kind of wandering the streets of Oslo on my own for a bit. And what happened was... So as I'm going around, I started hearing Tagalog everywhere, which is our language, at least um, the, the language of the people of the Manila area and Luzon. And I started seeing there were Filipinos everywhere in Oslo, Norway. And at first it was kind of this happy discovery because I was like, oh, you know, like it's my people that were here. And then I realized that they were all in um, what the Philippine government calls elementary occupations meaning in um, occupations that are extremely low pay and occupations that don't require training. And it's, it's all almost all manual labor. And I also saw a number of them in the service industry as well. And so um, I kept wandering about and I started paying attention to that. Yeah. And as I was wandering around and seeing what was happening, I saw also how they were being treated Mm -hmm. and the way that they were literally treated as though they were invisible. Mm -hmm. Um, No one paid even any attention to them. Um, And I saw the way that they were mistreated and it just spoke deeply to my heart. And what happened was I had to go back to my hotel room and I just wept bitterly because I realized that my people aren't free. And, and I realized that here I was giving these lectures at these, you know, these big universities that I, I had an opportunity that many other people don't have that, you know, my mother didn't have, um, that other members of my own family haven't had. And I realized that that meant that because I had these opportunities, that there was some responsibility to think deeply about, you know, why things are the way they are, especially since I realized that this isn't unique to, to Oslo, Right. Um, I'd seen this in the U.S. and in my home country of Canada, too. Yeah. You know, you've talked a lot about your becoming your your conscientization to being a Filipino American, your mixed race identity. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how your, you know, that impacts the way you interpret the Bible? It impacts your biblical, your your scholarship, your teaching even. Um, And maybe give even a specific example of a text that comes to, to mind. Yeah. So a whole bunch of ways it, <laughs> in the first place, one of the things that, that I've noticed is I pay a whole lot of attention to elements of coloniality in the biblical text. So, um, you know, I, I recently have written a whole bunch about acts. 
um, for the New Testament in color. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing coming that, coming out one of the soon, everybody coming out soon. Yeah, <laughs> really exciting. And so I was I was looking at some of those passages and just looking at um, you know the context of Roman coloniality and things like that, and realizing that the story of the early church really does speak deeply to the experience of colonized peoples. More recently, what I've started doing too is reading a lot of theology and biblical studies from the Philippines Mm -hmm. and noticing how specifically suffering is extremely important in Filipino theology and biblical studies because um, the theology of struggle, which is a Mm -hmm. specifically like indigenous to the Philippines theological um, tradition, starts with the idea that Jesus suffered but that is suffering wasn't passive. It was for the liberation of the world. And so what that means is that his suffering wasn't futile. It was a struggle. And so we actually have a word for that in Tagalog, makibaka, which is, it, it's the struggle. Like it's the, the Filipino, the Filipino American struggle as well. And so I've been thinking a lot about suffering and struggle in the text and also about being at the bottom and being treated like an underclass rather than as a model minority. And so that leads me to, I've been thinking a lot lately about first Corinthians mm-hmm. um, chapter one. I just wrote a paper on it for uh, society of biblical literature. Um, and I'll be at that paper. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. And this is the passage that talks about Christ being the power and wisdom of God. So it says for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. And so this is a passage that just speaks deeply to my context. And looking at it from my context, Mm -hmm. it names something. And that's the fact that, So the very fact that the cross, which is foolishness, you know, the idea of a crucified Messiah or um, even just a crucified king is it's a stumbling block. It's absolutely foolish. It appears weak. And yet to those who are being saved, there's this understanding and realization that it is in fact the power of God at work in the world. And so we're back at that idea of struggle again, that which the world sees as weak, the suffering ends up being for the liberation for the freedom of the world, the salvation of the world. And then we get into why that matters for the church, or at least for the Corinthian church, because Paul then goes on to say, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were powerful. And then he goes on to encourage them by saying, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong, that which is low and despised, things that are not traduced, nothing, things that are. 
And I can't help but see myself reflected in that, in the way that those who are treated like they are nothing. And I really like, I used to really like the shaming the strong part, but now I've, since I've been sitting with this passage more, it's this bit about that, which is low and despised in the world, things that are not. Mm. And for me as a Filipino American, you know, we don't even see ourselves in, in a lot of citations in Asian American biblical mm. scholarship. Um, like I recently read one of the manuals for Asian American biblical scholarship and found two references, two citations of Filipino authors. One was a theologian and the other was a lawyer and neither were biblical scholars. And so this whole idea of that, that which is low and despised, something that is not reducing to nothing things that are, mm. this whole idea of reversal, it comes back to taking our, taking our rightful seat at the foot of the table and understanding that in the kingdom of God, there is not just room for us, but also those voices that that which has been treated like it's nothing mm. is in fact the power of God at work in the world and all of these things. And so that's where um, I, I think our, our lens starts to become really helpful. Mm, sheesh. Yeah. I'm paying attention. I'm looking at the Greek tame onta. Mm -hmm. That which is being, being nothing basically, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so powerful that you notice that and that language resonates. Um, and that, that, I, that theme you talked about of, invis of invisibility mm -hmm. and that it's named, right? That, that sense of being not to God, but to others, often being nothing to them or seemingly nothing to the world, no benefit, no advantage, except for service or manual labor or um, um, helping other people's lives. Yeah, exactly. And, right. and it's important to name too the fact that like in, in Asia, our people are often servants in other people's houses in like in East Asia. That is, that is true. And, right. and so it's not just in North America that, that, that invisibility permeates like the Filipino experience around the world. And so the fact that not only does the text name the sort of invisibility being nothing, but also says that God shows that which is nothing, right. um, that is really significant because it, it, it's empowering, but it's also naming an experience. And I know it's not naming specifically the Filipino experience, but it's that overlap with that experience of those who belong to Paul's Corinthian community um, and that overlap with our world that kind of lets us understand that we are something that we exist because growing up for me, I never saw myself existing, right? We were a disembodied voice behind Aladdin, uh, behind Jasmine. Um, but here we are. Yeah. Amen. You know, as you're sharing Jordan I, and just our own, our own conversations, cause we're collaborating and doing some work mm -hmm. together. Uh, the theme of the kingdom of God, and obviously Jesus, of course, yeah, person of Jesus and you're working the gospels with the theme of the kingdom of God comes up a lot for you. Oh yeah. And, and I, and, and you can hearing more about your background, hearing more about your experiences, you know, I, I, a theme that comes, comes out to me as you're sharing is how for you, the kingdom of God is very fleshy and on the ground. It's very embodied in the people, oh, yeah. your people and um, in, in the street kids in Toronto in the ministry that was how and serving those kids who couldn't find a place to go anywhere else. And so when you talk about the kingdom of God and understand and read it in, in, in the gospels, it is very earthy of the earth. 
and not to be too much into the pun of the digging and the archaeology, <laughs> but I also see that connection. Oh, right? that's not an accident. Yeah, that's that's part of the reality, right? Because uh, archaeology is how I've been able to do history from below. So yeah, the physical I, material reality yeah. of the of of the world of 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 the kingdom of God that you're literally helping to unearth um, in your archaeological work, but also flesh out in in the way you interpret. Um, the gospel text, for example, um, in this case, Paul, First Corinthians. I'm not going to yes, limit yes. you to the gospels. Um, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask like a practical question about how you do stuff. Like, how do you stay passionate uh, about your work, creative in it, um, balanced and healthy? It's 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 been a busy time, I and mean, we're always so packed, jam packed with to dos and what we haven't done. At least I feel that way often. And so how do you deal with that? How do you uh, feel like you can thrive in your work as a biblical scholar for the church? You know, I've, I'll just be honest, and I hope that this, this names something for other people. I've struggled with that, and I still struggle with it. And I feel like- Struggle's real, brother. Oh, I feel like everyone else has it together, and I don't kind of a thing. Um, but I've realized that it's, it's taking time. And for me, it's understanding that in part, you're giving your life to others and being able to recognize that when you take up something like, what lately I've been taking up, but it's also, I think, making sure that, that you understand that you're doing things that feed into your own flourishing. Mm. And so for my wife and I lately, you know, decolonization takes a lot. And one of the things that we can, we do, this is kind of silly, but I, I promise it matters is we have taken time to watch dramas from the, the nations of our parents. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have, I'm not embarrassed to say that I have a TFC subscription, and that I watch P dramas with my wife and she watches dramas from Singapore. And it helps us to, I think, just like feel like, first of all, we exist in the world. Yeah. Um, but it also gives us some joy just to be able to think about things and do things, you know, that, that are fun, <laughs> you know, frankly. And, and also, you know, while I work, I've started listening to, um, just, you know, music from the Philippines. I was in Manila recently and um, there's just some songs I can't get out of my head. And it's, it's changed things for me because it's this reminder. Like sometimes I sit at my, at my desk writing and thinking like, you know, feeling like I'm not good enough because, you know, my people aren't good enough. And that colonial mentality dies so hard and being able to hear, you know, so many gifted Filipino artists um, and the gift of singing that so many of them have in music. It reminds me that, that we're worth something that, you know, that we're good at something that we've, we have value and that we matter. And that has made a world of difference in, in keeping me passionate about my writing. And it reminds me that like, I'm not alone. I might be alone on Wheaton's campus as the only faculty member of Filipino heritage, but I'm not alone in the world. No, that is not silly at all. In fact, you know, I, I, I too watch K-drama as a way to unwind. And, you know, sometimes it gets fatiguing to just watch things written for and by white people. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's just, it just, oh, you just, you know, it, and it's, it's, it, I feel release. Um, and not because necessarily uh, K drama reflects my world, but it's a different worldview and an approach exactly. to things. I'm not trying to glorify it and that's problem free, but it is a kind of a way to uh, decolonize the mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, Filipinos just full of, full of problematic scenes and, you know, especially around gender and things like that. But, 
but it is, it's a different worldview and it's a different way of thinking and a different set of values. And, yeah. and just, it's also just like seeing people <laughs> who look like us, right? Like that's, that's part of the thing that really matters. It's true. And uh, you know, I, I love watching with my kids and I asked one of my youngest kid, I go, you know, if you were to, we like to play this game, like in and out or McDonald's yogurt land or baskin robbins and then he'll pick something (laughs) like which one you and i said k-drama or marvel and he's like "Ooh, that's a hard one he said that that's awesome i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe he even paused i love that like oh yeah and don't even get me started on bts (laughs) i i I have to stop myself from listening to bts so i can get some work done um but i'll say no more i'll go down a rabbit trail so lastly i this has been so fun so interesting jordan but I wanted you to speak to our listeners directly about advice or, or practices you can give them to help them delve into deeper study of scripture. Yeah, um, I would say actually spend time reading it. And that sounds ah, silly, but that helps. like my, my no, students don't always do it. So something I think is really interesting is like my students will read whatever textbook I've assigned them, but they won't always read the biblical readings that are assigned along with the textbook. And I think that that is- Why do you think that is, Jordan? I think it's because they, I think it's because not just them, I think those of us that grew up in the church, especially think we know the Bible, but the reality is is that we really don't. Um, And I, like I have three degrees in biblical studies and every time I reread things, I notice things that I didn't see before. And in terms of just something that's really practical, and I want to be clear, I've chosen- this example, because I feel like it's something that's accessible to everyone without resources. Like you can just read the Bible um, and, and, and read it carefully and actually read it, not just talk about reading it and not just read about reading it, but actually reading it and paying careful attention and letting yourself see yourself in the text and, and, and like being okay with the idea that, you know, I resonate with this because of who I am. Like so much of biblical scholarship in, in previous years and, and um, in, in other cultures, well, specifically in like the Western culture has been about trying to be objective and get rid of our subjectivity. But that's like trying, that's like being afraid of your shadow. It's a part of who you are. And so, you know, let things resonate with you. Let it speak to you and not, don't just think that that's okay. Understand that it's something that you bring that no one else is bringing. So, I mean, that's, that is a tool you can bring to the text, who you are, your own context, your experience, and reading it carefully. And that's that's so practical, but yet hard to come by. Yeah. Exactly. I hope that, you know, I go, it seems obvious, but for some reason, it's daunting perhaps to do it. You feel like you need all these tools, but it really does start with reading, reading scripture, um, whether in large swaths or smaller sections, but to read and study it. So that's wise words. Um, any last thoughts, Jordan, you want to share with us before uh, we sign off? Not a whole lot, except you know what, read, read Filipino authors, read Filipino American authors, um, look up the people power revolution. If you never have before, um, you know, there's a lot there and, and often it's, it's underrepresented and, you know, even give a P drama try. If you've got Netflix, like yeah, I will. I, I definitely will. Hello, Love Goodbye is on Netflix. It's awesome. So, you know, we exist. We're in the yes, world. You exist and you are in the world. Well said. Thanks, Jordan. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. 
Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are. Thank you.